Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. So anyone recognize the music as you walked in? So that was the Glenn Miller Band doing a plain, uh, plain arrangement of Give a Little Whistle from what Disney movie? I spared you the original. It's really grating. So that was from Pinocchio. That was from Di- Walt Disney's second animated film. And I played it because the, uh, the chorus line is always let your conscience be your guide. I'm going to be talking about the conscience today. So let's pray and prepare, prepare to jump into chapter 20 of the Confession. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you again that you've gathered us into your house. Lord, we feel our need of it. And again, we need you to come. We need your spirit to come in a special way today. We're beaten down. We're tired. Uh, Lord, we're ungrateful. And so, Lord, come and change us once again. Uh, Lord, to come and teach, open up our hearts and teach and remodel and prepare us to walk out of here better prepared to love and to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you picked up the sheet this morning, we are on chapter 20 of Christian Liberty and Liberty of Conscience. I'm really disappointed because we're doing chapter 20 on the 21st. If we weren't out of order, we'd be doing chapter 21 on the 21st, and that would be really cool. But we'll just have to get through it. Does anyone in here know what exclusive psalmody is? Someone want to shout it out? I think there's some intramural debate on that, but yeah, in general. So exclusive psalmody is the belief that uh, for the recording that only only the 150 psalms in the Old Testament sh- are should be sung in corporate worship. Does anyone in here know someone who doesn't celebrate Christmas or Easter? Yeah, me too. Any anybody in here with Seventh Day Adventist friends? What what do you know about their dietary practices? There's a lot of them, yeah. They make good burritos. They make good burritos. <laughs> All right, we'll cut them some slack then. <laughs> when I was interviewing for my current job, the uh, one of the HR one of these HR staff uh, said, "All right, Chuck, we need to have a conversation." We are a Christian ministry, uh, but we were founded by Anglicans, which means when we have a party, there's usually going to be a bar and there's going to be alcohol there. Are you, you, know, you don't have to partake, uh, but it will be present. Are you comfortable with that? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I'm Presbyterian. That's part of our creed. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing was is I'd, I'd been interviewed a few months before with uh, another Christian company, and they had the exact opposite. They said that uh, if I was going to work for them, I had to, uh, I had to sign a covenant stating I would never drink alcohol again, ever, as long as I was under their employment. So I, I told them that here recently. It was, a fun, it was kind of funny. So why do I bring these things up? These are all areas on which Christians disagree. There's a lot of other things that we could pick. There's a lot of other things that we could pick out. 
Now, I have, I have dear friends who uh, are committed to exclusive psalmody. I, have the, I know I have very close brothers and sisters who don't celebrate Christmas and Easter. Are these things that I break fellowship on? Are these things that I decide, yep, that's it. You're not even saved. You're not going to heaven. You don't celebrate Christmas. You don't love Jesus. We're not going to have anything to do with each other again. Would that be an appropriate response? No, I don't think so either. But that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about what we have been saved from, first of all, which we've talked about a lot. Um, so, and then we're going to talk about what we're saved unto. Uh, in Christ. So if you're looking at your so if you're looking at your sheet, we're talking about chapter 20 and section 1 reads the liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave and everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind, all which were common also to believers under the law. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected and in greater boldness to access to the throne of grace and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. The writers of the confession, they could never go, they could never, it's like they could never dive into a new subject without looking back on the salvation that we enjoyed. They're all, everything gets tied back to that time and time again in these chapters. And so this, and so this section uh, that, opens this, uh, that opens this chapter is no different. They're looking back. When it says we're saved from the freedom of, if we're, we're freed from the guilt of sin. What does that remind you of? What have we talked about before? What frees us from the guilt of sin? Begins with J. Talked about, had a whole chapter. Uh, I hear people mumbling it. Thank you. Absolutely. Justification. Christ paid, Christ paid the debt for our guilt. He took our, he took our guilt. It says we've been We've been, um, we're freed from the condemning wrath of God. We have forgiveness. And the curse of the moral law, the covenant of works, has been fulfilled. We've been delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, and dominion of sin. What does that remind you of? The S word. Sanctification, that's right. It's not just, it's not just a legal declaration like a justification, but it is, a, it is now a reality within our hearts. We are now separated from everything that we once loved, everything that wants to find us. Uh, we are now, our hearts are now changed because of it. The inter from the evil of afflictions, I don't know if you noticed that one, that's an interesting little one stuck in there. Before we rush on to talking about the sting of death, the victory of the grave, which we no longer have to worry about, it's from the evil of afflictions. Before we were in Christ, we had hard things happen, difficult things happen, grief and loss and pain. And before there was nothing to them but the pain. But what do we know now? When, things, when difficult things happen to us, where do they come from? Come from God. To what end? All things work together for our good, even the hard things. And so, that is, so we are freed. I don't know if you ever thought about that. We're freed from the true evil 
of afflictions. We are not, we're, now it's not the pain or the grief or the sorrow of our afflictions that defines those experiences, but what the Lord is working out of them. And that's a tremendous blessing. Of course, we're freed from the sting of death and the dominion of the grave. We now have, we now have not only rep- we have repentance unto life and eternal life ahead of us that we're looking forward to. We're also being freed. Uh, we're also being freed to have access to God directly, and we serve Him with obedience, not with not out of slavish fear, but out of a childlike love and a willing mind. And in, and this reminds me of ado- our adoption in Christ. We're now part of the family, have all the benefits that go along with it. They also touch on something we've looked at many times before, the relationship between a uh, relationship of God God to his people in both old and new covenant. And what is the you know what is the different what is the difference? Is there a significant difference? I think it'd be best to fi- I think it'd be best defined as a difference in degree, not in kind. Our brothers and sisters under the old, in the Old Testament had access to God and looked to, faith, looked to receive grace in Christ who is yet to come. And yet we have something a little better. As Hebrews 10 tells us, for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these the same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. So we can now, so where there was a timidity, a hesitancy, where there was resistance and, frankly, difficulty in coming to God's presence, you had to bring an animal every time you came. Every time you sinned, you were bringing anything from a dove to a bull, and it was going to be messy. Uh, you're, and you're going to be reminded of that, of just how messy and dangerous and deadly your sin was time and time again. But now when we come to Christ, even now when we come to God, even when we come in sin, we come directly. We come directly. We may fall on our knees and beg for forgiveness when we get there, but we can do that without any other preamble. We can, as soon as conviction strikes our consciences, we can bring it right to the Lord's presence and be reconciled to Him right then and there. We'll do it here in a few minutes in in worship, and we all come to our knees. And if we haven't done it, you know, before this week, we'll have a chance to do it today. Lay our sins at, lay our sins on the altar, and let's and claim and request forgiveness in Christ's name. So we're, for, we're also free from the ceremonial law, which we touched on when, last time I taught on the law. All of the, all of the codes and regulations that the Lord had given to remind his people of their sin in the Old Testament are, are pa- passed away now. And our, orders, and our order of worship and service for him is much, much simpler and more direct. That gives us bold access to the throne of grace, and we also enjoy more regular communication from the Holy Spirit. 
it's interesting to read the Old Testament and trace the, trace the giving of the Holy Spirit whenever, whenever he comes. You can tell whenever he shows up on the scene that glorious things are going to happen. But it is very much, but it is a very focused individual thing. It's specific men and women called for specific times, equipped with the Spirit to do that work. And then, but when as soon as the book of Acts opened, all of a sudden the Spirit just gets poured out over the entire baby church and just gets poured, you know, gets poured out upon them. And that is, and, is, uh, and that is the experience of the church in the New Testament as we continue. The Spirit is with us. His word is now complete. And together, and together the work of revelation uh, the work of revelation um, is complete and complete in his written word and in his testimony in our spirits to us. As we're going to see, we're going to need that. We need it because our natural free will that we were given in the garden was uh, was a liberty in theory only. Thanks to the corruption of our whole natures in sin, we were not truly free to exercise free will because we were inclined to sin in all that we did. So those, so in Christ, that is removed, but now there's still, but now there is work to be done. And that brings us to section two, and some context for the weird song that I, got, I played to start us out. God alone is Lord of the conscience, and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word, or beside it, if matters of faith or worship. So that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience. And the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. This is, uh, this is not one of the confession's more clear sentences. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in here, but it can be a little hard to tease out. Let's start with, this, let's start with a simple question. We've got a word here that we haven't really touched on a whole lot before. What is a conscience? How would you define a conscience? It is not an animated cricket on your shoulder, no, in spite of what, yeah, Bob. Um, my son does need to confess to theologians. That's what they do. Don't we all? Um, he um, described it as there is this cork inside the body, and the conscience is in the doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anything else? Moral compass, yep. Hmm. How we're shaped by the beliefs that define us. Yeah, yeah, I think that's good. And I think, and I think you're touching on something that uh, touching on something we're going to look at here in just a minute. It's conscience is not an absolute thing in our hearts. It's it's present, but it's been corrupted, like all the rest of us. Yeah, yeah. The way I the way I put it down in my notes was conscience is an internal awareness of good and evil, a moral sense, which is driven by our spiritual nature. How often we forget this, particularly when we're 
we're tired and, we, and the caffeine hasn't kicked in yet on Sunday mornings, but we, have, we are spiritual as well as physical beings. It's not just our bodies that we, we drove to church this morning, but it's the vessel of the soul uh, that's carried within. And within that, we have the capacity to judge right from wrong. That is part of God's law written on our hearts. We wish that was a perfect instrument, a perfect tool for discerning, for discerning what's pleasing to him, but it is not, because just like everything else about us, body and spirit alike, it's been corrupted in sin. And that's where I think it's not always a moral compass. It doesn't always point true. Um, it can be seared. It, cannot, it is not immune from corruption. And repeated sin, in particular, can harden and damage our conscience, make it ambivalent to sin rather than sensitive to it. Uh, I was... When I was listening to R.C. Sproul on this subject, he quoted a very surprise, a very shocking, a very shocking little verse from Jeremiah. Jeremiah three three, he's Jeremiah's rebuking the children of Israel, and he tells them, "You have had a harlot's forehead; you refuse to be ashamed." In other words, you've forgotten how to blush. Your conscience is not operative right now. And so that's why that's why the communication of the Holy Spirit mentioned in the first section is so important. God alone is Lord of the conscience and praise him. He's, uh, he's in the business of restoring consci- corrupted consciences through his own spirit. Our spirit communes directly with his. It also means that he is the only one who has the right to impose moral obligations upon us. We've already seen this. He is the only one good and perfect. All righteousness is defined by his character and is laid down in his law. And so he is completely free from the doctrines and commandments of men. Only God alone may bind the conscience and tell us what is right and wrong, what is good and true and important to us. It says there, um, is left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word, semicolon, pay attention to the grammar there, or beside it if matters of faith or worship. Period. So what does that mean? So the Lord has left the conscience free from the doctrines of men. And he's left it free from, one, anything that, anything, that a, anything that a mere man states that is in opposition to Scripture is not binding on our conscience. So if I'm told that all Christians, have to, all Christians have to wear straight ties on Sunday morning, I don't have to obey that, do I? Obviously, you know, obviously not. Because, that's indirect, because we, have, um, we have no such command. Actually, let me make that more clear. Let's say, I'm told that you don't have, let's say I'm told you don't have to pay tithes to the church anymore. Let's say that, that's been abrogated. That's indirect. That would be in opposition to the Lord's command, which is why he's commanded us to give and to support the work of the church through our tithes and offerings. That's what we have to do. So any command that comes in opposition to that is not only not binding, but should not be done. So that's, so that's, but that's pretty obvious. If the Lord commands something... Do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery. Any commands to the contrary are obviously going to be in opposition to God and therefore not binding on the conscience. The other one, that little, everything that, that little clause that follows a semicolon is a little less clear. Anything given beside the word of God, anything given that isn't, that isn't direct contradiction, but kind of comes alongside and adds something alongside, it doesn't directly contradict, but adds something alongside the word of God that needs to be obeyed. If that pertains to faith or worship, then that must be rejected as well. And Andrew touched on this last week as we talked about the regular principle of worship. Worship is so important because the object of it is so exalted that we need to follow very carefully what's been laid down, not try to get creative in this area. 
So if we take the commands of men, either in direct opposition to Scripture or in addition alongside it, where worship and faith are concerned, then we are by, then our conscience are being are being bound, and our liberty is being uh, our liberty is being restricted. However, the thing that also goes along is that where God has left our conscience free, where we are free to decide, we must not take that away. Romans chapter 14 says, in verse 5 through 9, One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Every person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord he does not eat. And gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. Obviously, the confession was written during the Protestant Reformation. It was written during the time uh, when, commands, uh, when commands of men had mingled freely with God's commands, particularly in the church. And the Roman Catholics, like the Pharisees before them and many and legalists, and legalists throughout history had said, yes, you have to do everything in the scripture, but you also have to do this, this, and this, which we have determined would be helpful and good as well. And it was interesting because it was interesting the conflict the reformers faced because laying aside many of the dictates of the Roman Catholic Church was popular to many, many people. Uh, they were, they, the burdens that they were laid were onerous, just like those of the Pharisees before. And so coming back to, coming back to the, uh, the simple yoke of Christ was, was a tremendous blessing to so many men, women, and children struggling under the load, struggling to achieve the, high, achieve the um, unreasonable standards placed. It was, also, it was also attractive to many civil leaders of the time. Rome had made claims on not just individual souls but upon whole nations and had done so for hundreds of years. And so many political leaders were happy to say, okay, we don't have to do what the Pope says? Great, let's throw all that off. But then at a certain point they realized, wait a minute, these reform, these pro, this new Protestant church, they're not looking to just hand all this authority over to the state now. They, they think the church still has authority, not in Rome, but, this, but within local bodies here in my own country that I have no direct authority over. And so then all of a sudden, early, support, early political supporters of Reformation would, be, would often turn to be persecutors as they tried to wrest control back to themselves. That was, that was you know, no words that played out more clearly in England, and particularly for our forebears in Scotland, as they continually wrangled with the, British, with the English throne for who had authority in the church. Is it the, king, the current reigning, current sitting monarch, or is it going to be Christ who reigns for all time? So our conscience is free from the commands of men, but it is also uh, is free from the commands of men. We're bound to God alone. Did you notice that last statement? If you obey the commands of men out of conscience, if you obey the commands of men as though God gave it, it's not only destroying liberty of conscience, but reason also. And one of the verses that is given in this, the very first one, is Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word Christ. When the Lord is pleased to give his word, he doesn't just implant it into our heads and bring belief instantly. Instead, the word is preached week in and week out, 
It is heard and received by us, and it is, um, and our minds process it and learn it, and the Spirit applies it to us, not independent of our faculties, but through them. And so in this way, not only our conscience, but, very re- but even reason is respected, glorified, and properly established in the order of God. This is something to meditate on. We don't often think about this. Uh, but it's, it's well to remember, because our faith is often called unreasonable, and uh, unreasonable, and untenable, and unprovable. But it's quite the contrary. It's God's revolution that actually establishes reason and puts it in its proper place. Reason is not, uh, human reason unaided is not a source of truth. It is the tool that we've been given, along with our conscience, to discern the Lord's will and what is right and wrong. We've been given that. So both those things hang upon, hang upon this doctrine that we're learning about today. So beware of extra-biblical commands in the church. Beware of people going, being holier than God is. And this can happen in so many ways. There are so many things that we can think about and say, um, uh, there are so many things we can think about and say, it's better if we just don't go there. So I'll go back to the alcohol example I was talking about today. It's very, very, it's very, very, I have, um, I have close family and I've known friends who struggle with drunkenness, either in their own lives or in the lives of those close to them. This can give them a very, very tender conscience on the subject of alcohol and other addictive, other addictive substances. They may even make a decision in their own conscience that it's better if, it's better if I don't partake, you know, uh, if I don't partake of a beer or a wine or a mixed drink, at, you know, out for dinner, it's just going to be better for me because I've seen what it can be done when it's misused, and I don't want to get anywhere close to that. And that can be a very, that can be a very, very mature, that can be a very, very mature and serious decision taken, and the Lord can bless that if it's done, if it's done in submission to Him. But where we have to be careful is now we look and say, well, this has been so beneficial for me. I think everyone should do this. I don't think anyone should pick up alcohol ever again. And so now you begin to look, and now you begin to look at your brother or your sister who, who's, drinking free, who's drinking freely without, uh, without conflict of conscience and not to excess, enjoying it, and you think, that's not right. That's not right. That's different from my own experience. And, what I figured, and what, so what I believe needs to be the case for everyone. And so now all of a sudden, and this is, how, this is, how our con- this is where we need to be careful in how our conscience is used. Things that can be free... At, whether we are free to enjoy or whether we, the Lord leads us to place restrictions upon ourselves, we need to make sure that they are the Lord's commands before we try to place them on others. Because the Lord has given it, because outside of worship, because in worship God is very jealous for his ways to be done. But outside of that, he has given us the world and all it's contained to be enjoyed, to be enjoyed with thanksgiving, as we'll see here in a few minutes. Sarah, your hand's heading up. Go ahead. Right. 
Right. I'm so glad you brought that up. Kate and I spent the last week arguing about that very point. Because, yeah, you know, if you're paying attention, alcohol is kind of the easy one, isn't it? We've kind of had that debate, and, you know, we kind of know where we all fall in it. But let's take the Christmas one, for example. Anybody who comes to me and says, well, you know, my family doesn't celebrate Christmas, and yours shouldn't either, is not going to just make it a blanket statement. They're probably not going to have any evil Christmas stories that have led them to that decision. What they're probably going to have is a bunch of Bible verses. And they're probably going to talk about the sanctity of the Lord's Day, and the, you know, we don't have any additional we don't have any additional commands for additional holy days in the New Testament, things like that. Fair to say. And so they're going to ha- they're going to think this is um, they're going to think this is a, this is a biblical matter. We do have the Lord's direction, and that's why I'm coming down. That's why we need to do it. But let's get really uncomfortable. What about head coverings in church? What about baptism? What about wine versus grape juice in the offering tray? And this is where this chapter gets really, and this is where this chapter gets really hard to teach. Because now we have, now we live in attention. We have commands of scripture on the one hand. We have personal opinions on the other. We have to be free. We cannot bind each other's conscience wrongly on the one hand. We have to be free to enjoy the things uh, that God gave us in this world. We all grant that. On the other hand, we have to live together. You know, we have to live together in unity in the church, and the elders have to figure out, you know, what is right and wrong practice for this church and every other one. And what do we find? We have people who disagree, because, by, you know, because we have sanctified consciences and reasons and hearts now, which means we're searching our Bibles and we're trying to think not just how do I worship God? I want to do that, but how do I live my life faithfully? And we're going to come to very, very different places. Life is, there's not total uniformity in everything. Life is a whole lot messier, isn't it? Bob, do you have your hand up? Um, Mentally. <laughs> Mentally, yeah. Um, the problem with this, and this is 
Mm -hmm. And they rewrite it, and we have principles, and we have principles, and we lock our hands, and we work our hands, <laughs> and you think something just tremendously important, superb, okay? That's the last thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do too. The Roman Catholic Church, if I understand you correctly, because of all their command, additional commands, they were able to suppress the parts of Scripture they didn't like, and make it. And which is always what you do with man's standard. You have God's high standard, which is impossible to achieve, and so you add man's standard and you bring the bar a lot lower. It's a lot more onerous in some ways, but it's actually a lot easier to to achieve in many ways too. You should add the Pharisees. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but we all do it. We're all Pharisees at heart, so yeah. it's not like it's it started with them either. But yeah, yeah, will. Okay. This is pet peeve morning, so go ahead. <laughs> We're way off script now, so. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. <laughs> Join it to the Lord. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but so, I mean, but from her perspective, you're basically just a carnal Christian. You believe, you're, you, you believe your Christian faith, she believes your Christian faith makes no demand upon you whatsoever. And she wants you to be so impressed by how hard she's, you know, how hard it is for her to love Jesus instead. Yeah, so we're... I'm glad this came up today because this is this is to me this is the heart of the struggle between law on one law and authority on one side and liberty on the other. The next two I'm going to, I'm going to dispense with the next few sections of this very very quickly. The next one says we can never claim liberty we can never use liberty to claim um, we can never use liberty as an excuse for license. We can never sin and say it's okay I'm you know I have liberty in Christ. You know, you you'd think that'd be obvious, but nope, they had to say it. I mean, the addition, we had the Roman Catholics on one side, you had the Anabaptists on the other at the time that this was written. The Anabaptists saying, law doesn't matter at all. We can do whatever we want. Let's have three wives and show that we're under grace, not under law. <laughs> and then with chapter 4, it also says you cannot use your liberty. Uh, you cannot use your liberty. Um, you cannot resist. You cannot use your liberty as, as a justification to resist the ordinances of God, either in the church or in the or in the civil and social sphere as well. So you can't be you can't be you can't be causing dissension and pe uh, and disrupting peace in the name of liberty. But I feel like not, I think both of these are touching both of these are touching, but not completely struggling with the tension we're talking about today. Because yeah, with the with the you know, I agree with you about the Lent. It's a difficult one. And when I hear about that, when I hear about people coming and binding consciousness, saying we have to do this for a month or a week or whatever it is, then I want to say, you know what? Let's get rid of that. 
and Christmas and Easter, and let's just focus on what you know Christ told us to do instead of all these other things that we pile on top. And this makes me very sympathetic to the anti-Christmas crowd and some of the points they make. Which reminds me of debates that we have we've that we frequently have with our brothers our brothers in Presbytery, because we have we have brothers who baptize differently than we do here at Trinity. And they do it at different times than we do. Uh, they do it much older. Uh, they do it much older. They do it solely in confession of faith. I have very, very dear friends, and this is a really difficult topic to talk about. Um, because, you know, we both have our Bible verses. And I've actually had, um, Caitlin's got a friend who, who literally just, you know, when, when this debate comes up and Caitlin pulls out the passages that talk about why we, about the importance of the covenant and how the baptism symbolizes that, and why we apply it to children, and why we, you know, the continuity between the Old and New Testaments and why we sprinkle and, and all these things. And, you know, and her friend is just so frustrated, says, you know what, don't even bring those passages up. Everyone talks about those. They're not allowed anymore. And that's where debate on these issues can and ultimately come. And so I think we have to turn from the confession to Scripture here to, to try to weigh this out. We're not going to answer all these questions in the next five minutes, but I think that these principles are important. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, in verse 33, it concludes, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. We're repeatedly told to avoid dissensions, avoid disputes. And nowhere, nowhere do we get into disputes faster when our own personal scruples are being challenged. The things that are important to us that have to be weighed through. So what, so... Let's take, the, let's take the baptism issue. We could take any one of these. And we meet a brother or sister who has different views of it. When we start, let's check our own hearts. Let's make sure that our concern, and before we go into the conversation, is love for the Lord above all and our brother, uh, our brother next. Let's begin the conversation by talking about what we both agree on, just how important this subject is. Whether it's baptism, whether it's alcohol, whether it's, you know, what we wear or, you know, what we wear, how we conduct ourselves in the house of the Lord, we all believe that's important. 
Let's begin by asking questions about why the other person believes what he or she does, um, because that's where it needs to be. Um, because that's where it needs to begin. Because usually, because usually our commitments are very complicated things. Many of us believe the things we do because we believe God. God commands them. Sure, absolutely. We do have redeemed hearts, as we've seen time again. But let's also recognize that both we and those we talk to have very, very different, very, very many more additional reasons for why we might believe what we do. It could be personal experiences. It could be, uh, it could be instru influential instructors that we've had. It could be other things that give us the priorities that we do. We need to recognize that in ourselves and in the others that we speak with. And so we need to be willing to go in and with love. We need to have patience with one another. We need to be willing to argue without getting our feelings hurt too quickly. This is true for both sides in the argument. We have to be able to work through. If we have passages, let's work through them. But let's not fling them at each other's heads. Let's lay down, actually open up our Bibles and read the whole thing. Read not only the verse that you think proves your point completely, but read the, script, the passages that come before and after. And then let's both wrestle, let's both wrestle through what the church throughout history has, has thought about those passages as well. Let's take the time. Let's take the time to actually do this, because we do it so rarely. We're so busy. We wouldn't want to take months to, uh, to work through difficult issues or disagreements with anyone. Let's also, remember, um, let's also remember the authority, and this is what, so let's have patience and love, first of all. Let's also remember the authority, um, let's also remember the authority that the Lord has put in our lives. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. There is a strong tradition in American Christianity in particular that we have to be, well, you, Nathan, I think you mentioned getting to this earlier. There's a strong belief that if we're to be unified, we have to be in total, complete agreement on everything uh, to be with the body. And if we don't find that, then we're going to leave. If, so if something happens that we don't instantly like in one church, we'll hop off to another. Um, if we ever get back to doing our short biographies here in Sunday School, I'd love to do one on Roger Williams, such an influential man in the history of, history of America and the early colonial, early colon, in the early days of the colonies. And Roger Williams ultimately ended, up with, uh, ultimately ended up in a church all by himself. It was him and his wife and one other couple, and then they disagreed and that, and that church split, and it was just Roger Williams and his wife, and that was it. He was so prickly. He was so determined on so many issues that he, that he was right and that everyone else, he had to find people who were exactly the same like him. I can look at all of you here, and I have had sweet fellowship and hard, you know, and hard disagreements with many of you, and yet we are here in the church together. And to do that, we have to swallow our pride, and we have to be willing to submit. It's one of the interesting things about being an elder at a Presbyterian church, because even the elders are in submission to the elders. Even each individual elder has no authority. The authority is held with the entire, uh, entire body of the session. So we have to submit, we have to submit to that authority even, you know, even like as much as anyone else. So let's remember that, so let's remember to, that our, our heart should always be love for God, patience with our fellow man, submission to the authority that he's given us. And then within that, let's use our liberty, our different perspectives, our own study of the scripture to work through the issues carefully and slowly and patiently with one another as we work. Bob, we're coming short on time. Quick question.
We'll see. Okay. On permission to seek truth, people. Interesting. I think the truth is laid out before us, and we have a hard time understanding it or being changed by it. And so I think what we need to, I think what we need to seek with one another is to understand the truth together. And I think that, is, and because, and because we're not, we're not glorified yet, we're merely sanctified. That means it's a long journey. Any other questions or comments as we finish up? This has probably generated more questions than it's answered this morning, but appreciate all the feedback. Now let's pray and prepare for worship. Heavenly Father, all wisdom and knowledge is with you. And in your wisdom, you have committed, committed your ordinances, your laws, your, your commands to your church. Lord, they are clear, they are direct, your revelation is perfect. Heavenly Father, we are fallen, and we are twisted by misunderstanding and ignorance and pride, and it mingles freely with grace, uh, with, with grace and redemption in our hearts. Heavenly Father, we look at our state, and we wonder how any, uh, Lord, we ha wonder how any marriage can survive, let alone any church remain together. Lord, because it's not just here that we see dissension and dispute and people being pulled apart. We see it all over our world. And yet, Lord, we have seen your church rise and grow and labor together. Um, men and women, old and young, rich and poor, black and white. Uh, Lord, American, American, Tanzanian, uh, Chinese, everything come together. And there's no, there's no explanation for it in this life. So, Lord, we cast our care upon you and upon your spirit. Pray, uh, pray that he would come, be with us today. Give us grace and patience to work through difficult issues. And, Lord, let us love and embrace at the end of our debates, whether they're resolved or whether they, on, they go on uh, for you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.